people might think that this is a conversation about the environment. But in truth, this is a values conversation. It's what we had last time. They are values conversations because those are the conversations I have. And it's certainly the conversation that this podcast is. That's where I come from. I'm always looking at what is the deeper values that the person is driving under? What is the purpose of their being, the meaning that they're looking for in the life? In doing this the way you've done it, which I really appreciate, is, as you said, it's not about wagging the finger and you are wrong and you are bad for the environment, but rather eliciting the values of that person so they can make a choice. And that's vastly different than wagging my finger and saying you are wrong, you are bad, which is the world we live in and why we have people doing crazy is because somebody's wagging their finger and saying you are bad. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Dove continues his insightful, thought-provoking, and thoughtful discussion about these things that a lot of people don't think about, about awareness versus willful ignorance about distraction from what matters, but also how to get back to what matters. He talks a lot about how freedom can be a prison, and this forces you to reflect, to meditate, to learn about yourself, which is how he got there, I believe. He talks a lot about his challenge, about not driving his dream car for over 100 kilometers. This is something he loves, but it's also about living by his values, overcoming internal conflict. It's not what you lose or what you give up. It's what you replace it with. He replaced it with something that he likes more, which is what you have to listen to here. When we start off, we start talking about plants and food. I love how Dove, a world-class speaker, talks about how he digs in dirt because that's what gardening is about. So let's listen to Dove. So what I've learned is that if by getting to know the volunteer coordinator for the farm delivery thing, if I show up at the end, I get extra vegetables. Oh, really? Yeah, and last time... I literally had, I had so much I couldn't carry them and I had like four <laughs> times as much vegetables. So my fridge right now is full of celeriac, this kind of broccoli that like, it looks like a Mandelbrot set. Oh, I've seen those. Those are fabulous. Yeah. I saw those in the store. I'm like, what the hell is this thing? It's <laughs> like, it looks like art. It, it does. It, it, it tastes the same. <laughs> oh, does it? Yeah. It looks fabulous though. It looks amazing. And then I got all these uh, peppers and all these other things and I was really curious of what to do with them because celeriac, I don't really know. And then I saw a picture of celeriac soup. So I was like, oh, I'll make some soup. So after I finish with you, I'm going to eat the soup. And then over there, I have I have so many plums. I would guess I have two bowls over there. I have like probably 40 plums and I've eaten as many as I could since Tuesday. And I have all these apples and pears. You can cut your plums down and you can put them in the freezer. My freezer is filled with peaches. <laughs> Because I've been doing this all summer long and I don't know what to do. And actually over there, I have this giant bag of the scraps, not scraps, but uh, earlier in the summer, I got these beans and the beans, I've only gotten beans either in cans, which I don't get anymore, or in uh, dried, you know, I bring a bag to the store and fill the bag yeah. and weigh them. And these were in the pods, in like mm-hmm. in the plants. And so the other day I noticed that there was, I had them in this plastic bag and I guess there must've been some water in there. So there's a little mold growing. So I said, all right, can't let that go. So I was up until like 1 a.m. this one night. And I normally go to sleep before 11, just shelling beans. And at first I'm like, what am I doing? Because like the amount of beans that I shelled at like 2 or $3 a pound in bulk, it's like $10 worth of beans. But they're beautiful. And I've never done this before. And I'd wondered for a while, where did dried beans come from? Because I know where peas come from. I've seen them in pods. Right. But I never saw beans in the pod. So, oh, really? I'm getting closer and closer to nature not nature. I mean, it's nature, but it's like how we've getting closer to the land and it's just, but you're also, 
you know, you can say you're getting closer, but you're also getting more aware of the process that we get lost in. Yes. Because we're very much end users. Right. And so we're end users. So everything's been done for us. Yeah. You know, like I told you, you know, I'm a meatitarian. Um, I eat meat and, and I did try to be vegetarian. It lasted a year and a half and I'd never been sicker or fatter in my life. It just didn't work for me at all with uh-huh. my body type. But I've often said that if I had to kill my own meat, I'd start it because I thank God that somebody does that process uh-huh. because that process is horrible for me. You know, and it's the same even with anything, even a bean. You know, it's there's a process and you get a can of beans and you go, yeah, great. You know, throw beans in the stew. But yeah, that yeah. whole thing is a pod and you get to shell the pod and that some Mexican man is doing that for two bucks an hour. And, you know, and meanwhile, crazy pants wants to ship them all back. It's a fascinating ecology and economy. There's a bigger picture that most people are missing. Yeah. And you might say, like. Why don't you let the immigrant do it for $2 an hour when you can do other things? But what would I rather be doing? Not that I'm like going to hang my hat on shelling peas or beans. You know, there's the old story about the fisherman and he's like, the MBA comes up and says, Oh, you know, you could get other, you could hire people to do this for you and then you can get a bigger boat. And the guy goes, Oh, what if I got it? You've heard the story, right? Yeah. You know, and then eventually it's like, where's the end? Well, you can go fishing. (laughs) (laughs) You can hang out and go fishing. And cooking and preparing food is just wonderful. And three years ago, I had no idea. You know, I could cook pasta. I could open up a can of something and heat it up. And I mean, I could make good stuff, but it was still always not starting from the original plant or a little bit. Like I'd get a jar of tomato sauce and I'd fry up some garlic, onions, broccoli, put that all together. And it would definitely be a better pasta. But now it's like now when I get something like all the celeriac, I'm like, what do I do with this? Before it's like, what what do I do with this? I don't know. Now it's like, hmm, what do I do with this? Right. And it's, I think that there's a curiosity. I'm guessing here, but I think that we must have evolved to have like a really fascination for plants and like enjoying preparing stuff. This is an interesting conversation. I mean, you're probably not even recording it. Oh, it's being recorded. Is it? Okay. Because this is, I mean, this is a very interesting conversation in the context of the planet. Oh, yeah. In the context of the planet, because as I said, I think that we're so distant from the original source of something, we think everything is instantaneous. You know, my granddaughter will never likely know anything different. You know, we, at least you and I have, you know, had some interaction in our generations, you know, in the generations to come, everything is just getting faster and faster and faster and everything's in a hurry. And I need somebody to make sure they do all the steps. And I get it and I appreciate it and I recognize it and I, you know, I'm, I'm actually applauding it. I like it. But there's also the loss of connection to the earth. People ask me, what's your hobby? And I'm, and they're always surprised when I say gardening. And they say, well, don't you live in a city? I do. I live right downtown. Mm-hmm. Uh, but gardening, everybody, like in my, I live in a townhouse and everybody in my tower stops to look at my garden and everybody tells me about my garden and how much they love my garden. And I grow with beautiful flowers and I also grow herbs and I have and mix the herbs and the flowers together. And it's gorgeous. It's a tiny space for me because I had a big garden before, but it's a tiny space. And I grow all these things and people say, why? And I say, it's my meditation. Having yeah. your hands in that dirt, going out every day, deadheading, cutting herbs when my wife's making food. And she says, can you go cut me some rosemary or can you get me some basil? Yeah. Can you get me some whatever it might be? You know, and it's. That, and you're walking in and smelling those smells of all the herbs and the flowers. We're urban living, urban and speed takes a lot of that away. So we want flowers. We go across the street. We get to go to the store, go to the bodega. We get the flowers. And that's nice. It's beautiful. But there's no I don't think we think, where does this come from? It's like 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 these things, right? iPhones. I wrote a piece on this called Second and third generation problems that we don't consider. And the piece was, I am totally in favor of electric cars, massively in favor of electric cars. I think they're fantastic. Love them. Love my iPhone. Can't really live without it. I've gotten that way that I can't really live without it. It's my life. I carry it with me wherever I go. Okay, I'm a modern person. But at the same time, what does an electric car run on? And what does this run on? It runs on a battery. Okay. 
That's great, right? Because we're not polluting. Because Where do you think the batteries come from? Nobody thinks about that. It's a lithium battery. Where does lithium come from? It's mined. Who mines it? Often children. Mm-hmm. So we're putting more lithium batteries in cars to drive them around, but very often it's slave labor that children are doing. Mm-hmm. We don't think those levels down because it's like, oh, I'm helping the planet because I'm not putting gasoline in my car, but I don't think about the levels. I think people have access to it, and I think they know where it leads, and they don't want to. That's a very good point, Joshua. I think there is the the willful ignorance that is – I can pat myself on the back. I can feel good because I drive an electric car, but that the level of goodness that I feel will will come down slightly, (laughs) at least if I saw photographs of kids in Africa working 14 hours a day day at at six years old to crawling down little holes to mine lithium. Yeah, that probably would take the shine off for me. Yeah. Yeah. And the flip side to me, like I – Went through. I don't know if I told you the story when I found out how much pollution that flights flying causes. And I did what anyone does. I suppressed that information. I didn't want that clashed with my identity and I didn't want to deal with that. And if that's all there was to it, I wouldn't be doing this podcast. I wouldn't be trying to spread the message that I'm spreading, not just spread the message, but spread the behavioral patterns. Yeah, because the end result, when you actually do connect with all that and I got ways to go. But as far as I've come. What happened for me when I reduced my every time that I reduced my impact on the environment, it gets better, at least by my values. Right. More delicious, more mm-hmm. convenient, saving money, more community. It's better. And, you know, there's a whole slow food movement and there's all these other things that are going on where people get this minimalism and so forth. But it's so predominant message of comfort, convenience. Don't worry about all these other things. Just enjoy more, more, grow, grow. GDP, higher GDP is better. It's very hard to go against that. Of course it is. I mean, you've got to remember that the machine is driven on economics, right? And, and economics is driven on fear. And yeah, and these beliefs. <laughs> people afraid, and the more afraid you are, because if you don't smell good, women won't like you. So you must buy my aftershave. Mm-hmm. And if and if you don't, if you have any hair on your body. And men won't want to sleep with you. So buy my hair remover. I mean, you know, it's everything is fear. And people knowing that doesn't seem to be enough to get people to exit that. They know it. It still works. Well, you know, as Bandler said, the problem is, and Erickson said too, the problem is not putting people in a trance. It's getting them out of the trance they're in. So, yeah. So that's pointing to the solution because I believe you – Simply telling people what's going on, I think, is not enough for them to change. But it doesn't get them out of the trance. Yeah. You can say to the person who's in a hypnotic trance, you're now in a hypnotic trance, and they go, okay. <laughs> and go, oh, I should get out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. And I think that uh, – so what does get people – You know, I mean, I hope that hearing others go through transitions is a big one. I mean, that's what I'm trying to do. That's Is it the only thing? No. Is it one thing? Yes. I think it's more effective than – well, look, I agree that finding out the science – Spreading the information about the science, I think that's important. Passing laws, I think that's very important. But those things alone are not enough. And I don't think they've ever been enough. I mean, yeah, I mean, I've said this before, probably to you, probably people who've listened to all the podcasts, but like spreading science, spreading facts. My example there is we know more about nutrition than ever. We know more about diseases of excess than ever. We still eat a lot of Ben and Jerry's and we can't stop ourselves. And so we're dying of diabetes. And like people are pointing fingers at like, they say like hundreds of thousands of people die of like eating too much and like this tiny, tiny fraction of that die from eating too little. And they're like the same thing. But anyway, that's a whole other issue. But mm-hmm. and then we pass these laws that people agree with them in principle, but they don't like how it's being forced down their throats, how they perceive that it's being forced down their throats. And sometimes it is. And so they re- reject these things and we end up continuing to grow and continuing to grow. That's the falsehood of freedom which is something very few people actually will ever address. This sounds very rich, Gay. What, what do you mean by that? Well, the, one of my quotes is, the most effective prison in the world is the one you don't know you're in, where you believe that God is your friend. Mm-hmm. So we live in a society, particularly in North America, where and predominantly the first world, where we 
the highest value we have is freedom, democratic freedom. We will go to war with another country under threat of losing our freedom, under threat of them not believing in our version of freedom. But when we start going down in the Mandelbrot set and, and we start diving deeper and deeper and deeper, we find this the same over and over and over again. So people have a tendency to go either into a trance about that and stop noticing, mm-hmm. which is very often what happens, or they rebel against it. And so then, then you get your radical right wing who say, don't tell me what to do. You know, I, I want my Confederate statue and you don't get to tell me what to do. And I understand that because it's an insult to their freedom. The problem is, what are you? So you, you say you're trying to take my freedom, but what are you calling freedom? This is what this is where it gets fantastic. This is where it gets so intricate and so interesting. How do you claim freedom? What is freedom? Because it's an indoctrinated idea of freedom. It's not actually free. So you're saying you're trying to take my choice away because I like my Confederate flag and you're trying to take my choice away because it insults your your morality. Okay. so what's the freedom you're fighting for? The freedom to do what I want to do. All right. What does that mean? Well, what it actually means is the freedom to stay inside of my box, the freedom to keep my blinders on, the freedom to see the world through my lens. And that is actually freedom. But the lens you're looking through is the lens of your cell window. Uh-huh. So it's a fascinating deep dive into psychology that most people will never even consider. And so one of the questions that I had to delve into in my own work more than 30 years ago was, what is the prison I call freedom? And if you as a listener, even right now, or you, uh, Josh, as we're talking about this, if you were to meditate on that question, your whole world would fall apart. Your whole belief systems would, would become under question because it, rema- it it forces us to question everything. So what is what is the prison I call freedom? And then when you get to that, you get the other side. Okay, what is the prison I call freedom? How have I made freedom into a prison? To me, the question becomes, you saying everything falls apart. I would say you have to rebuild everything. Yeah, every, well, so I'm saying everything in the form that you know it falls apart. And there is this psychological, very often for people, psychological devastation, because as you mentioned earlier, there is a challenge to my identity, how I see myself, how I see the world. It, it is the story of the matrix. So what do you do about it? Cause you're talking about what happened to me. You can talk about it, but if I don't meditate on it and come to things myself, I'm just hearing you talk. I mean, it'll, like, I'll get it and it might give me some milestones to see along the way, but ultimately you have to discover it. For, I, I believe you have to discover it for yourself. And there's things that you're talking about. I've discovered some things, but that are comparable to what you're talking about, but not exactly what you're talking about. So I will meditate on this, but then what do you do about it? What, or what did you do about it? Because uh, <laughs> I, I really want to focus on like what like what comes next. What do we do about it? Not just like I don't want people navel gazing. <laughs> yeah. So the first thing I did about it was uh, resist it. <laughs> what is it? Thing. Huh? What is it? You resisted. Resist the idea that I had created. I had created a, a, a prison called freedom. That was a, a bizarre idea to me, and I resisted it. it was like, okay. That's nonsense. Right. I want to dismiss it. It was easy to dismiss. So, okay. So, and then, okay, well, then I got past my own resistance. And then I said, what if it's true? And I, I, I always say that to, to my clients that I work with is what if this idea that you want to reject is true? And what if what you believe is false? So you begin to question that. Mm-hmm. And so, and then my question to that is tell me anything you believe. Just pick something, Joshua. Did I believe? Uh, gravity works at 9.8 meters per second squared. So something you believe philosophically about your life. I don't know. I believe that most people want to leave the world a better place than they found it. Okay. What has to be true for that to be true? What has to be true for that to be true? That people have this belief, that people have this desire 
that they want to leave the world a better place than they found it. I mean, right. And have you met 8 billion people? No. So what's your evidence? Yeah, it's uh, my own belief and my right. commonality with the people that I've met. Ah, and you got a commonality with the people that you've met. And by the way, I don't disagree with your belief, but however, there's a commonality with, with the people you've met. However, the people you've met are the people who fall into your resonance field, meaning that they resonate at the same level as you do. They likely think the way you think in some way, shape or form. If you're vi- just to use a radio analogy, if you're at the frequency of 95.3, they're not likely to be at 103.5. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, they're going to be within the range. So there's going to be some common uh, resonance with, between the two, between you. However, you can go online, you can find people, you can meet people in particular bars or whatever it is who have a completely different view of the world and see it very, very differently. So the problem is we have confirmation bias. We're looking at the world through the lenses uh, of what we want, meaning the mind is looking for evidence of that which it believes to be true, even if what it believes to be true is completely false. So we believe what we choose to believe, and we don't often choose what we want to believe. Mm -hmm. I'll say that again. We believe what we choose to believe, but we don't often choose what we believe. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So most of what we believe was either indoctrinated or adopted. Yeah. And it's not self-discovered. So when I had to look at what is this prison I call freedom, I had to look at where have I gotten the idea of what freedom is? Because I thought, I mean, I give you an example. When I went to my friend and told him that I was going to marry my wife, and he said, you can't do that. And I said, why? He goes, I know your highest maxim. I go, me too. And he goes, well, your highest maximum is free- maxim is freedom. And I said, yes. And he goes, well, then how can you get married? And I said, because your idea of freedom and mine is different. Mm-hmm. And he goes, what do you mean? And I said, well, yours is the ability to put your penis in as many vaginas as possible. That's not my idea of freedom. Mm-hmm. So it's and did that, did that new mode of freedom, did that emerge from this self-exploration and, and questioning? Yes. So it, that it, came first. and that, So among other things, it produced a, a deep, resonant, long-lasting, loving relationship with your wife that probably would that might not have been possible otherwise. I, I never feel restricted. Like when, so this is what I'm talking about, indoctrination and adopting. Um, most of what we believe is indoctrinated, adopted, or reactive. So for instance, my father... My my birth father was a philanderer. My grandmother, who never swore, said if he could get up early enough, he would fuck the crack of dawn, mm-hmm. meaning he was jumping on anything he possibly could. <laughs> my grandmother didn't swear, uh, but she uh-huh. certainly swore about him. So my reaction to that as a boy became it's wrong to do that. So I became monogamous as a belief system, not as a truth, as a belief system. What that meant was that in my teens, even early 20s, I would go for coffee with a girl and I'd have another coffee date or another meeting with another girl later in the afternoon. And I would not show up to the second meeting because I feel like I was cheating on the first girl who I'm not dating. But in my uh-huh. brain, I can't. I, it's cheating. Yeah, you became so, like so, a, a nice guy. Way beyond nice guy. Way okay. beyond. But you, yeah, you, it, you know, like capital N, capital G. Like, yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. But what it is, is that it, it what it is, is it was a reaction to a belief. So my father's. My father's belief was he was free to sleep with anybody he wanted. My grandmother and mother's belief was that he was a douchebag. So I chose a side and reacted to my father. Am I monogamous now? Yes. Am I free to sleep with anybody I want? Yes. Yeah, so it's your choice. So every Based day, all day long, it's a choice. And that's what freedom is. Freedom is every day, all day long, is a choice. So I can go to jail. It's a choice. I cannot go to jail. It's a choice. All right. Bring this back to the environment. Yeah. So uh, actually, let's bring it back to what your personal challenge you did. So you took on a challenge. You could it was you got a Jaguar. You like the Jaguar. That was my my dream car from when I was a kid. So you aspired to it. Yeah. And uh, now I got to ask, was it the dream car? If you could get an E type that had the same reliability, same performance and so forth of the current one, would you get it like an E type? that? Because the style of the E types is so yeah, the E-Type Jag was the sexiest car ever made. There's yeah. no doubt about that. That and the Aston Martin DB8 from James Bond, uh-huh. those two cars were amazing. But even if I could get an E-Type that was reliable, because those 
pieces but of crap. Fell apart, yeah. Couldn't make a block. If I could get one, though, I would not have one because it is. I mean, we're talking about practicality. There's no practicality to it. Okay, it's, I mean, just, it's a, just a just a. I, I actually got to drive before I bought my Jag. I got to drive the Jag Sport, which is very similar. It's the S type. It was a very similar to to the E type. Very similar. Long nose, all the the rest of it. Uh-huh. And a friend of mine owned one, and he and my car had gone in, and he said, "Use the Jag," and I was like, "Cool." I drove it, and it was beautiful to drive. It was magnificent. It held the road spectacularly, and it felt really good getting in and out of it. But God forbid you had to put anything larger than an umbrella in it because <laughs> there was no room. That's really. not what it was for, yeah. Well, you folded the roof down. It went into the trunk, and there was room for an umbrella. Uh-huh. That was it. So There's I'm- back seats in it that are there purely for insurance reasons. You can't sit in them mm-hmm. unless you're a four-year-old. And you know you're you're strapped in like like you're going into orbit. I mean it's insane. So, so no, I would not have an E-type. <laughs> I have to comment now that uh, you're the second person this week that I'm talking to on this podcast that is talking about what do you call them? Supercar, uh, luxury cars, um, yeah. exotic cars, cars, muscle cars, all those kind of things. And part of me is like these cars do not get great mileage and. People are driving them for fun and it's, I mean, people aren't really, I don't think people drive them like to go to the grocery store and back. So I think they're usually for fun and that's not great for the environment. No. On the other hand, my view of leadership is, is much more about supporting the person and well, hopefully helping them see if, how their values, well, you're already doing it. You're choosing to lower your driving. The other guy, he, he chose to not eat meat for, I think it was a month, two months. Mm-hmm. And he and he said very clearly, he said, I will not reduce my driving the exotic cars. He's like, that that's not going to happen. Right. And so I listen to him talk about it. I'm sitting there thinking, like, how are the listeners listening to this? Josh should be Josh should be saying, stop that. But I'm not because no. this is about people to me. And I think that we have enough people saying, do this, don't do that. And I think that in the long run, people will reduce, you know, the joy of, of things that you know, there's a lot of things you can do that like pollute. I think we stopped doing a lot, a lot of things that we know hurt other people, even though we don't have to. I think that's going to happen, but I think it'll happen less for me telling you, stop that. Well, it, it is the natural reaction psychologically if somebody tells me not to, that I want to. I mean, you know. Yeah, you want to resist being told. You don't like to be told what to do. You know, do you know that the first time I got married, I was 16 years old, right? I think you said that last time, yeah. Yeah, I was 16 years old. And the reason I got married at 16 was because my mother said I couldn't. Uh-huh. It's very simple. Maybe she wanted you to get married. (laughs) No, get him married young. Then he'll get, then he'll eventually get into a really great relationship. Maybe she was like, (laughs) maybe she knew you better than you thought. But but it's that. So this is part of the problem with, with environmental people is they're wanting to should people and they're wanting to make people wrong. And this, that, that, that process has never worked ever. It's never worked. What we have to show people is the good outcome. It gets people to dig into their heels more, dig their heels in more and say, you want me not to do that? You're telling me what to do. That means you want me to change. That means you're not happy and I'm happy. And you want me to follow your advice? That doesn't make sense. Well, it's the whole thing with the Confederate, with the Confederate statues. I mean, I watch that and I go like, you guys are pushing for a backlash that is just going to be ridiculous because the more you try to say, these are wrong and we should tear them down, the more people will fight to keep them up. People who actually don't really give a crap are suddenly feeling restricted. They don't think that they're wrong. They don't think they're full of hate. And so if you say you're full of hate to someone who doesn't feel like they're full of hate, they're like, guess you don't understand me. I'm not going to listen to you if you don't understand me. That doesn't make any sense. Right. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable, join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. So how did you feel about doing this challenge with the not driving? Wait, well, it was... Uh... I, I was actually very consciously aware of it, so I 
consciously chose to, I mean, I, I like to walk, so I, and I don't live in Manhattan. So, you know, in Manhattan, I walk everywhere all the time. I don't particularly like the train in Manhattan. I actually prefer to walk and I walk in the rain or whatever. But Vancouver is a much smaller city and I, I do like to walk. So I walk a lot and that, so that's fine. But I, I noticed that there were things where I would normally jump in the car to go. And I was like, no, I'm going to get, I'm going to walk. And, and now it's interesting because showing my own bias, I chose that challenge in the summer. Uh-huh. Much easier to walk than in the piss and rain in the winter. Right? Uh-huh. So not so much fun. So I didn't miss the driving as much as I thought I would. That was number one. Uh-huh. Number two was, um, and you and I had chatted briefly in between, I found that I savored a little more. Uh-huh. I savored the drive a little more. I savored being in the car. There was one particular day that I went, ooh, I could go over the over my, my commitment here. And, and as you know, I sent you photographs yeah. of my <laughs> odometer the day the, the day of and then and then today. So to making sure that I was kept to my word. And, and there was one day I was out and I'm like, I kept looking at the odometer going, oh my God, oh my God. Uh-huh. I was like freaking out. Do I have to pull over the side of the road and stop? I wanted to keep my word. And I was with my bride and it was our anniversary and we were driving, you know, we were driving to where we'd gotten married. And, you know, and so it was like, how far is that? And how do I make it back? And, and how do we go for lunch and not go over the limit? So it was like, so. And who the f- is this Josh and why is he getting between me and my wife? <laughs> <laughs> but what was interesting about it was that I came back and felt very good about the fact that, you know, I, I like to challenge myself and I, I didn't feel like you were doing that to me. So that's very important for people to understand. I mean, you offered me an opportunity to create a challenge for myself. You didn't tell me what the challenge was. I decided on that challenge again, freedom. Right. So I decided on that and I felt, I felt pretty great that I didn't go out and, and it was interesting because two days ago I had the opportunity to, to go out in the car. Uh-huh. And that's when I took the photograph, by the way, of my last odometer uh-huh. was because I had the opportunity to go out in the car and went and go and went, damn, if I get enough, <laughs> if I so much as drive out of the garage, it's over. So it's like, yeah, you know what? I'm just going to close this and, um, I guess I'll be five minutes late and I hate being late. Like being late pisses me off. Uh-huh. So I, I walked very fast and actually did get there in time as opposed to getting there five minutes early, which I would have done in my car. So it was a great experience. I'm, I'm really glad I did it. That tells me that this style of influence is, at least in this case, more effective than what we were talking about before, like telling people what to do. That gets people pushing back. I think there's a lot of polarization from not from People saying, you know, this is good, this is bad, and other people saying, what do you, do you t- tell me that? And inviting people to change and g- asking people, what what gives me hope is this belief that I think people want to leave the world a better place than they found it. And okay, that leaves open what's better, and that there's some right. agreement on what better means because we want freedom, but we also, you know, everybody wants freedom, but everybody also wants clean water. You know, you don't want to be drinking like mercury. And so when these things clash, how do we resolve that? Mm-hmm. And I hope that what I'm doing is to lead people to an experience like yours. It reminds me of, you know, in college, I drank beer to get drunk. Now I drink scotch to savor and I drink a lot less alcohol than I used to before. But I think my net joy of through alcohol is higher now, certainly more mm-hmm. refined. And it certainly connects more with other people because when you're just drinking to get drunk, you're like, oh, just pour it down. But this I'm like, what's going on in Scotland? What like? What are they doing with each other that they're like figuring out how to do all this stuff and why can't anyone else do it just like that? It's all this human stuff. Well, you know, I mean, it's an interesting thing you brought up there because that's what I was saying when we first started the conversation. We remove the humanity. You know, yeah. we go to the store, we buy the can of beans, right? Versus the humanity of, you know, one of the exercises we used to do in, in one of my programs was we had a silent dinner one, one night. It was a retreat, seven night retreat. And one of the nights was a silent dinner. And as we left the main hall, everybody was not allowed to speak until they came back in the room. And I had instructed that we can now speak. And the layout of what it was, was that during dinner, you cannot speak. You can nod, but you can't speak. You can't mouth stuff to speak without words. You actually have to not speak. And the, 
you must taste everything you eat. So instead of a 45-minute dinner, we had an hour-and-a-half dinner. Uh-huh. And it was fascinating to watch because when we come back, you know, we had a little bit of uh, Baroque music playing in the background. It's very nice. And, and we would come back and we'd ask people and we'd say, uh, and we asked them, make sure you taste everything. So whatever's on the plate, you know, we tend to rush through it. Whatever. I want you to make sure if you're going to have gravy, you taste the gravy mm-hmm. separate from the mashed potato. You know what I mean? You know, whatever it was, I can't even remember what it was they were eating, but, you know, each of the things, taste each of them. And it was fascinating to see how many people came back and said that they tasted everything. And then once we did that, then I said, okay, here's the next part of the exercise. I want you to now move to gratitude, but not at the first level. I want you to think about gratitude at every possible level. And they were like, well, what do you mean? And I said, how many of you had beef? The beef was on there. And they said, okay. Beef, great. So I'll, I'll walk you through the beef, but you can do the rest. And they go, okay. I said, at the level of the beef, there is the guy who cooked it, the chef who cooked it for you. There is the kitchen hand who helped with that. There is the person who delivered the beef. There is the person in the butcher's shop and where it was bought. There is the person who brought the beef, as in the piece of meat, to the butcher. There is the farm in which grew the grew the animal there is the person who took the time to kill it yeah there's the guy there's people who who domesticated this thing tens of thousands of years ago yeah and the person who actually took who who had to push their morality or whatever it was to the side or do whatever they were able to do in order to kill that beast mm-hmm. and you know and i walked them through all the things and then all the way back to as you said like to the grass and to the domestication of the animal and walking through that all the all thing. And then the next, then what we said is that before you go for dinner the next day, we did the next day, before you go to dinner, here's what you have to do. You have to run through the, the gratitude you did yesterday for all the food. We're going to take 15 minutes for you to just run through the gratitude at all the levels. Then watch how much you eat. And everybody came back and said they ate way less. Yeah. I didn't yeah. tell them it was right or wrong. I didn't tell them they were eating too much. I didn't tell them it was wrong to eat meat or right to eat meat or any of those things. What I asked them to do was to become conscious. And this is what I'm talking about freedom. You see, people think freedom is to be unconscious. That's the prison. But freedom is actually in being conscious and freedom has a cost. And the cost is you have to be awake. So did this exercise, by the way, I hope people are not just listening to you, but also thinking to themselves, at my next meal, I will be conscious and I will taste everything and I will do, grat- you know, it may not be at one meal, but maybe two meals. Cause you know, the first exercise in my, in my book and in my course is to, is this three raisins exercise where you have to eat three raisins with all full, all your senses as if you never come across them before. Before I sign it, I ask the students or when I sign it, I'm like, does this sound weird? And they always say yes. And I say, can you do it anyway? And they're like, yeah. And so after they do it, after we discuss it in the next class, I say, was it weird? And they go, yeah, it was kind of weird. And I say, should I not, is it too weird? Should I not do it next year? And like, no, do it next year by all means. Like this is it. Yeah. This exercise is really important. Costs nothing. Doesn't take you away from any, you know, it's, you're going to eat anyway. Yeah. And it's trivial to do, but really amazing. And Profound. I remember when I, when I, oh, I had a lot of experiences like what you're talking about. And, but I, I had this plate of pasta. That I, was, I thought that it was going to take me like two minutes to do this exercise. It took me half an hour. And then I went and like put the fork in the, in the spaghetti that I was going to eat. I twirled it up and I was about to put it in my mouth. And I'm looking, I'm like, like in horror at how much pasta I was going to put in my mouth for one bite. Cause I was so sensitive. And I'm like, what, how could I do that? And I ate half the bowl and I was like so stuffed. And I would have normally eaten the full bowl, not thinking twice. Yeah. So this is, I'm just repeating what you said. Yeah. It's that, but it's the willingness to become conscious. This is what freedom is. This, you know, cause you're asking me earlier on what I got to was freedom is the willingness to be conscious about that which I'm unconscious of. And did this exercise to give you free, like what value did it connect with? Was it freedom? Was it consciousness? Yeah. It's it, a deeper sense of what freedom is and that freedom only exists in a single moment and it only exists in a single moment of consciousness. So example, you're walking from A to B and you suddenly realize, I don't know what I thought about. And you go, wow, I was completely unconscious. Or you're driving from point A to point B and you go, how did I get here? 
Like I don't even remember the drive. Where you finished college and you think four years. Four years. That was a lot of beer. Yeah. <laughs> or just like that was a lot of not paying attention, not just, you know, just following the path that was ahead of me without thinking, is that the path that I want to be on? Right. Or what, like, am I getting what I want? So is this an experiment you did and now you're done? Or is it going to change anything? Is there, is there long-term effects? No, I think that, as I had mentioned last time, I am now considering considering uh-huh. letting go of the Jag. Oh, wow. That's big. Mm-hmm. I'm actually considering letting go of the Jag. You know, this reinforces one of the big things that I'm seeing in this walking a lot of people through these personal challenges is that there's a big thing out there that says, here's a little change that you can do. And saying here's a little change implies you don't want to do it. And it reinforces the belief that you don't want to do it. And I think the value of little changes is not that little changes add up to more than little things, but that little changes wake you up and get you to do the big changes. Yeah. And you realize there's value in these big things and that's better value. Evaluate what's good, what's bad. It gives you the chance to choose what you want thinkingly, consciously. Mm-hmm. And that's the value of it's not doing something little. It's doing something, whatever you got access to. Yeah. Again, level a level of consciousness. And as I said, I want to keep repeating this to people that freedom, most people think freedom is that I don't have to think. And freedom is the ability to think. Mm-hmm. It's weird. It seems like obligation. You know, 1984 was based on the fact that you're not free to think, but you're going to be free by following the rules. Well, that's not freedom. Freedom is the ability to think, the ability to choose. And most people don't bother with that. And so now you have a new choice in your life. Yeah, so I now I've gone from being unconscious or not truly unconscious, but semi-unconscious around, around driving my car to saying, I mean, I became very conscious every single time I got in that car of how many miles I was going to put on it, how much, how much driving I was going to do and just recognizing that and saying, okay, so are there times when I really want to drive it? Yes. Are there times when I feel like it's the right vehicle for me to drive for what it is that I'm about to do? Yes. And any other time is simply, in my mind, irresponsible. Mm -hmm. Not the truth. It's just in my mind. Irresponsible. So can I be more responsible? Can I be more conscious around that? Yes. Okay. It's not a big deal, but I can do it. However, I may, I may give up that car. So it sounds like there's a struggle and that the more you struggle, the more struggle you want. I mean, the struggle is not, it's like hard, but I think that why do you struggle? You don't struggle for no reason. There's a reason because you think there's something on the other side of it. Where do you see the struggle? Well, you have a, I, I guess you have a conflict, an internal conflict that you like the car and you also like not the car. I'm oversimplifying. And so you have to figure out on what side of this of this conflict do I want to end up? Yeah, I mean, I don't see it as a particular struggle because it, it doesn't occupy my mind. So that that would qualify as a struggle for me. But it's not the truth. It's just my truth. For me, it's not necessarily a struggle. It is actually, if I really look at it, it's the time it would take to make that choice. You're making a choice. And yeah, so if I made the choice to, to, to stop driving the vehicle, that's actually inconvenient. So there's a convenience to driving the car, but there's actually an inconvenience to not driving the car, meaning not that it sits in my garage, but that now I've got to put it up for sale. I've got to take care of the paperwork and do all those things. And I'm a busy guy and I got a lot of shit to do. And mm-hmm. I don't want to be bothered with that. That's, uh-huh. you know, that's, if there's a struggle, it's, it's, it's a time struggle. Not okay. actually to do with ecology or planetary or any of the moral reasons. Yeah, it's practical. Yeah, it's practical, totally. I learned so much theory and physics. Well, theory and physics, I think, is much more concrete than theory in other places. But practical is so much more. What you actually do, to me, brings things home so much more. And now I'm really curious. Are <laughs> There have been several people that I ask, do you want to do a third? Because some people are like, done. Great. Thanks, Josh. Good luck with your next person. But a lot of people are like, this is really, they're like, it gets them really thinking, really doing, really like considering what comes next. And, but usually it's not, to me, this sounds like a big thing. And it's not like you could put a date on it. Like with some people, 
they'll do something and then I'll say, do you want to talk again? And they'll say, yeah, let's talk again in three months. But I don't want to put a date on what you're doing, but I'm kind of curious of if you decide one way or another, or if is there's a, it feels like there's follow-up for you. Mm-hmm. Want to do a follow-up conversation, a third one? Sure. And as I said, the, the challenge for me is around the practicality of the time. So for me, where are we? This is September. So I know right now my decision, my conscious choice is that within six months, I will make the decision to keep the car and shut up, uh-huh. but still drive it far less than I did. Because I know, I know I've already made that decision. I've already made that decision. I will drive it far less than I, than I uh-huh. did. But within six months, I'll make the decision whether to keep it mm-hmm. or let it go. Yeah, it'll be interesting because if you're driving a lot less but enjoying it more, keeping it might – the I, I see the decision matrix changing in, in lots of oh, odd ways. That's a very interesting thing about it, right? And then so, there's also like there's rentals and things. Like maybe you could get a more exo- access to a more exotic car but not actually owning it. I don't know if that's interesting or not. Yeah, but you see – This is like me, a perfect car. But for me, see, the, even having this car, conversation about cars, it feels – inauthentic for the simple reason that I'm not a car guy. Mm-hmm. Like I've got lots of friends who are car guys, my friends who love Maseratis and love Lamborghinis and love all these fabulous cars. I don't give a shit. I really don't care. There are only three cars I like. Jag, Bentley, Aston Martin. Mm-hmm. That's it. I can't afford the other two. I drive a Jag. Uh-huh. <laughs> so those are the three cars I like. And the reason I like them is because they're larger cars, they're very comfortable cars, and they have a lot of power. I like all three of them because they're they're larger, they're powerful, and they're luxurious. I don't like the climb down and get in your Ferrari car. I have no interest in that. I have a friend who has a Lotus. He goes, do you want to drive? I'm like, no. Uh-huh. no. I have no interest. So I'm not a car guy. And people say, well, what engine is in it? I'm going – one that moves the car. <laughs> I don't know shit about engines. I'm not a car guy. So it's not that conversation. So for me, when somebody says, oh, but you could rent this, like, yeah, why? Like, I don't care. So it, for me, it was this, I was this, as I told you last time, I was this poverty kid living in the edge of the ghetto who would go to the main road and sit on the curb, and I'd see certain cars go by. And one of those cars was a Jag, which I always loved. There were different Jags, as you said, E-type Jags, but also other Jags that I just loved. There were Rolls Royces, which I got a ride in when I was a kid as part of an initiation test that I did on a school camp. I got a ride in it, uh-huh. and I really liked it, but I actually liked Bentleys more. And I liked Austin Martins because I liked James Bond, uh-huh. right? But outside of that, eh, you know, really don't care. Uh-huh. I mean, I get in people's cars and I go, it's a beautiful vehicle, but – Am I going to run out and buy one? No. Am I going to run out and rent one? No. So it's not that for me. Uh-huh. It's, I, I love that doing these things, when you act on your values, conversations become about values. Conversations become about meaning and purpose. You know, you got to do your taxes. You got to like, would you like a receipt with that? You know, you got to handle that sort of regular stuff in life. But it's this type of conversation to me is much more interesting. Like, oh, it's not exotic. It's your experiences with the Bentleys. It's your experiences with other people and how I bet when they ask you what kind of engine is it, I bet that that helps you refine. Like, what is it that I like about it? Even if it didn't come out in conversation. Mm-hmm. And that's what to me, this is all about is that it's, I hope that I'm helping people to live their life by their values to, and that means that their relationships with themselves as well as with other people are going to evolve I don't mean evolve like Darwin, I mean, you know, just change to develop in ways that they like. And it's, they'll have more of what they like. Yeah. And that's what, that's what I really have enjoyed about our conversations is it is. And I think it's part of the, the misdirect is that people might think that this is a conversation about the environment. And I think it falls under the banner of that. Mm-hmm. But in truth, this is a values conversation. It's yeah. what we had last time. Uh, it's what we, you and I have had when we've not been recording. They are values conversations because those are the conversations I have. And it's certainly the conversation that this podcast is. That's where I come from. I'm always looking at what is the deeper values that the person is driving under? What is the purpose of what they're being, the meaning that they're looking for in their life? And, and in doing this the way you've done it, which I really appreciate, is, as you said, it's not about 
wagging the finger and you are wrong and you are bad for the environment, but rather eliciting the values of that person so they can make a choice. Yeah. And that's vastly different than wagging my finger and saying you are wrong, you are bad, which is the world we live in and why we have people doing crazy shit yeah. is because somebody's wagging their finger and saying you are bad. Yeah. And if you can look at that on either side of that spectrum, it doesn't matter. That's why, that's why the, the, the Christians went in and did the things they did to the Native Americans, you know, because they were bad and you have to wag the finger because they have not accepted Jesus, you know, and then, the, and then there's the, the jihadists doing their thing, you know, whatever it is. But it's all about wagging the finger and making somebody wrong as opposed to revealing the values of that individual. Yeah. But if you reveal the values of the individual, they might choose something other than what you choose. And we're not we're, we're not really good with that. <laughs> I hope to. I'm trying, you know, I mean, yeah. that's why I try to empathize with the person more than impose. So, yeah, I'm kind of like I'm part of me is thinking I want to continue. But part of me is also thinking always leave them wanting more. And I'm, I'm thinking, could we schedule the next the six month one now? Uh, no, you and I can sort that out off, off air because right? I have to go into my to go into my calendar and find it. Okay. So we're now uh, what are we? September twenty second or something? Yeah. As we record this, September twenty second. So we're looking at around mid March. <laughs> I'm like October, November, December, January, February, March. Yeah. Right, mid March. So yeah. we'll sort something out for mid March, and I'll, we'll come back and see what the evolving state of this. Yeah. Is. Now I'll, I'll be like, now I'm going to be thinking about you for six months. I mean, we'll be in touch anyway. <laughs> well, I might be coming for that stew in April. I've been invited to speak in April in New York. So we'll see if it works out. I don't know. It's not confirmed yet. Well, if you could taste the, the celeriac soup, the celeriac and, and, and Mandelbrot broccoli <laughs> stew that I made and, and, and these, uh, poblano peppers. So good. But the celeriac soup with some caraway is delicious. Ah. You know, I got my herbs over there. I don't have any caraway, but I got rosemary. No, you won't be growing caraway because it's exotic. Okay. But you can go buy caraway seed and grind it. And you don't need a lot. And it's so good in the soup. Springs the flavor right up. I'm going to get some then. And, uh, yeah, if you tasted it, you'd more likely, you'd be like, let's make this thing happen in April. <laughs> but you'll get to taste it then anyway. April is, it's a difficult month because it's going to be all root vegetables because like the spring stuff hasn't quite grown yet. Right. So you'll get turnips and rutabagas and, and cabbage and parsnips. Anyway, it'll be really good. I look forward to it. I guess I'll close with, if, if I can, any advice for people who are listening and thinking, should I do this? Should I not do it? Or what their Jaguar is or something like that? Yeah, and th but I think what you just said is very important. And I would challenge the listener exactly on that, which is what is your Jaguar? What is your Jaguar? Because your, my, my Jag is a Jag, mm -hmm. but your Jaguar might be Frappuccinos. Mm -hmm. You know, it's that thing that you really enjoy that maybe has a negative impact on others or the world or, you know, the planet or whatever it is. And, and just to, to really ask, just ask yourself if outside, and this is the, this is the thing outside, like my car is delicious to drive. Right. So outside of the deliciousness, so there's the sensual experience of the thing and then there's the values. Yeah. And, and to be willing, I challenge you to be willing to put those two things side by side, because I'm not asking you to just like you're not, which I love, by the way, is I'm not asking you to, to give up deliciousness at all. But I am asking you to evolve, to bring forward, to become conscious of the values. And very often we repress and suppress the values that are our own in order to facilitate the sensual experiences of the world that we live in. And that question is one that will wake you up should you decide you want to wake up. But again, you may not. And that's perfectly fine, too. What I just want to say to people is, is to repeat, which is that consciousness, that freedom is the willingness to be conscious. What does conscious means? It means you get to be awake about the things 
that you've been asleep about. And some of those things you become awake about, you may prefer to be asleep about. <laughs> That's the challenge. Yeah. Well, not, for, not for everybody else, for me. And it's the challenge for anybody who chooses to take that on. And so the, the interaction with the environment is a place that you can do that. The, the, the environment is a wonderful place to play with it. And, you know, just the thing I would say to everybody is, you know, that exercise I gave you, which is to slow down and eat your dinner, but as, and even do it as you eat. You go, okay, as you put the meat in your mouth, run through those different levels of gratitude to, you know, to the person who cooked it, to the butcher, to the, the farmer, to, to the person who killed the beast, to the person who domesticated the beast, to, you know, all, whatever it was, to the, maybe the child who was in the barn when that animal was born, if it was born in, on a, on a farm, you know, whatever it was, all of the gratitude, all the way back. If you it just, that is such a powerful experience. And then you can do that. And by the way, that is something I, I never even mentioned it. I apologize. That's something I did with the Jag. I decided to do that experiment with the Jag uh-huh. after I took on this challenge. So one day I went out and I sat in my car. Uh-huh. Okay. I went and sat in my car. Remember I told you. Try to smile at this. It's kind of, yeah, I'm, I'm picturing it. Yeah. Right, so remember I told you that I was going to go for a drive and went, ah, if I go in, I'm, I'm, if I get, even get out of the garage, I'm done. I'm over my limit, which was my hundred, hundred kilometer limit. So what I did was I sat in my car and I ran through the gratitude. So I went, okay, huh. what am I grateful for? And these are leather seats. So I had to now think about the animal that gave its life for my seats. Right. And it was like, so I had to go through that. And then I went through all the different pieces, the people who work in the factories that created the plastic and, and, and the trees that the wood came from because it's got beautiful wood paneling. I had to go through that. And it was like, that was really cool. Then I went deeper and I went into the people working in the, in, in the factory who built the engine and the, and then it built the body parts. And then, then I went into the tires and the rubber and where does the rubber come from and the rubber and the trees and all and the plants that gave birth to that, you know, all of those kinds of things. I went into the depth of all these different levels of gratitude, even to the creativity of the person who designed the vehicle, who probably was working on this design and maybe couldn't. I know that when I get excited about something at night, I can't freaking sleep. I, I go to sleep but I'll wake up like an hour and a half later. And I thought about this person who probably wakes up an hour and a half later. It's just thinking about this different curve that they hadn't really thought about. And suddenly that, that curve is exciting to them and they want it, you know, to get out of bed and sketch the curve. And I started to become grateful for the person who sketched the curve. Uh You know, I started to think about all of those different pieces, just like you do with the dinner. And suddenly I'm, and I realized that I'd been sitting in my car for like 15, 20 minutes and I totally enjoyed my vehicle and I hadn't gone anywhere. And I want to leave that for people that they have that opportunity is there for them as well. Yeah. Enjoy the deliciousness. You don't have to go anywhere in it. You don't even have to have it. You can simply enjoy the deliciousness from a place of gratitude. I'm so glad you said because deliciousness is what that's like the main thing that I think of because it started because it started with food packaging and it ended up being these delicious vegetables. Mm hmm. I'm going to leave it there. And so you and I will connect afterward on other cool. stuff. But like we'll talk again in, in about six months uh, on this. And yes. in the in my theme of trying to give the listeners everything so there's no secret stuff on the side, we're, when we hang up, we'll hang up. And then we'll get in touch about our other non-environment stuff or tangential related stuff. I look forward to that. Thank you very much. It was my, my absolute pleasure. And uh, I'll find a date in March and send that to you. Okay, great. So talk to you soon. It was a pleasure, my friend. Always a pleasure. Same here. I look forward to seeing you soon. Cheers. Same here. Bye. Bye. He felt great. He savored the opportunity. He's glad that he did it. It improved his life. This is not what most people expect when they think about doing something for the environment. Earlier guests had to struggle to get through things. He enjoyed this process. It was a challenge but he had a greater realization of the value of something and acting on it, especially freedom. His consideration of getting rid of a car took this podcast for me to a new level. I'm releasing it before other conversations I recorded after because earlier guests, they do things like getting mugs instead of disposable coffee cups or not eating meat for a little while. 
These are great challenges to start off with. Getting rid of a car is a pretty serious consideration. It told me that this podcast has the potential to change things on a significantly bigger scale than I thought of before. And for that, I owe Dove a big debt of gratitude because now I'm seeing that potential for serious change. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.